Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you are too busy considering whether not driving to work for the environment might mean you could ward around from home today. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. This is The Climate Zone. Welcome back to the Journal Spotting Climate Zone, continuing our series on the number one cause for concern for humanity, the climate. Barney and I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Richard Smith, MBE. Richard trained as a doctor, uh, originally working in Scotland and then New Zealand, before then joining the BMJ, where he was editor-in-chief from 1991 to 2004. He's had a pretty diverse career, including being the BBC Breakfast Doctor, amongst many other prestigious positions. And he's currently the chair of the UK Health Alliance, having recently directed his sizable intellect towards trying to get healthcare systems to respond to the climate crisis. Now, our conversation explored the carbon footprint of clinical research and clinical trials. This was based around a recent article that Richard co-authored. Barney, what do you think of the interview? Uh, Thanks, John. Well, first thing to say is, what an absolute legend. Um, Listeners, not included in today's podcast included topics such as beheadings um medics having sex or lack of dinner party discussions you name it it was great we we, we went through it all not all uh, those three things in one conversation not, just not, to clarify yeah. those were separate <laughs> separate, <points>. separate conversations <laughs> and uh, but also so, so many really you know, fantastic take-home points not, not only i should add for the researchers or potential researchers out there but any clinician interested in what they could do for climate change. Yeah, I thought Richard was full of really fascinating facts about the link between climate change and the healthcare system, and also full of quite a lot of optimism and a lot of things that we as healthcare professionals can do. So really brilliant conversation and and hope everybody enjoys it. As always, guys, please subscribe and rate us um, on whatever podcast library you use. It really helps. Follow us on Twitter email us on journalspotting at gmail.com with whatever you want to say or just share the podcast with every single medical whatsapp group you have yes even the archived nights 12th of december 2015 party hat poo emoji even that one oh <laughs> we should probably crack on with the interview yeah let's <laughs> I'm going to jump straight to a part of the interview where we were discussing how people act when they're being filmed and a bit of reality TV. Absolutely. And that is reality TV for you. Everyone goes, I would never do that on TV. But once you've been filmed for a day or so, you forget about it. And that's it. Not not from experience. But just, yeah, your time on Big Brother, Barney. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's I all, haven't ever watched coming, yeah. Love Island. That seemed to be all about how you look, I suppose, and how you came across. So. Everything, single thing was premeditated as if you were sort of on stage constantly. Gosh. Yeah. Far in a way. There we go. Is that, is that your next um, aim? Is it to be on Love Island, Richard? Is that? Yeah, <laughs> I've certainly got the body for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we can't see properly, of course, the cameras, but I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh. Yes. Anyway, you were, I'm illustrating how long winded I am, as my wife would say. <laughs> don't worry too much because we we quite like a bit of conversation i i'm i'm very guilty of waffling so uh mm. and that's fine john's very good at cutting me cutting yeah. me out afterwards <laughs> it's all about finding a balance <laughs> yeah um Lovely. but 
Professor Smith, thank you for joining us today on Journal Spotting. Um, you're really here to talk to us mostly about the carbon footprint of clinical trials, um, but we're going to get onto that in a second. I kind of wanted to start by asking you a bit about your career, if that's okay. Um, you've had a pretty fascinating and diverse career, long-serving editor of the BMJ, TV doctor, a writer. So I guess amongst all those kind of diverse roles, um, how did your interest in sort of climate change start and the climate impacts of healthcare? Um, and how did you become more engaged in the issue? Well, it was, it was right back in the 90s. I mean, and it was really through being an editor. Um, you know, I began to read lots of things about climate change. I can go, remember going to MEDACT meetings or whatever MEDACT was called in those days. Um, I had a friend who was the editor of a journal called Medicine and Global Survival which was not just about climate change, but about nature, about population. And we took over that and published it in the early 90s. And all of that really began to sensitise me to uh, the climate crisis or global warming or whatever we called it then. And when I was first the editor, as opposed to an editor, one of the things I did was to get Fiona Godley, who's now the editor of the BMJ and very concerned about climate change. She and another colleague did a series for the BMJ on the environment, which I think sensitised all of us. And then returned to the issue again and again and again and again. Mm. Um, and I suppose what's been so disappointing is how long it's taken people to realise just how serious this is. I mean, ironically, I think there has been a dramatic change in the last couple of years, uh, partly now, I mean, as we say, climate change is not in the future, it's right here, right now, uh, which I think increasing numbers of people realise. But also I think Greta Thunberg, I think she was terribly significant in raising the profile. And then I think Doctors for Extinction Rebellion too, or, or not just Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, but Extinction Rebellion generally, really, did an important job in raising the profile. So now we do begin to take it seriously, but I suppose the worry is that we, we may have woken up just too late. And I do worry a lot about how the world is going to be for my mm. grandchildren. You must sit there quite frustrated by the sounds of it, having been made aware of the issue in the early 90s through your job. You must be incredibly frustrated that sort of however many years later, everyone's only just woken up really you know it has felt like it's just the last sort of four or five years if that yes i suppose to i mean i mean if you're going to be frustrated at human behavior you're going to go nuts so <laughs> I'm not, you know i i know that human beings are highly imperfect in fact it led me to think you know that i think we have you know, we know that all species come and go um and I think we're going to be one that comes and goes very quickly. So although we're remarkable in so many ways, you know, to the extent that we did see ourselves as literally the centre of the universe and God's creation, I think when you look at it, you realise how many flaws we have. I mean, we, we are not very good at projecting far forward and realising what's going to happen. We live very much in the moment. I think, too, that we kind of lack imagination. If we really could see the world as I think it's going to be, if we could see the world as lots of people suffer right now, then I think we would be more responsive. But, I mean, as T.S. Eliot said, humankind can only 
cannot bear very much reality. We, we live behind a screen. I also, I'm very interested in death. And I think the fact that we all live with the knowledge we're going to die allows us in some odd way to live with the knowledge that terrible things are beginning to happen to the climate. We sort of file them in some way together. Um, I'm not sure, but so I'm interested in the kind of flaws we have and you know, what will come after us, some sort of much superior creature. In fact, maybe the two of you are the kind of creatures we need in the future as opposed <laughs> to somebody like me. Hopefully like more hair follicles. Yeah. <laughs> a, a bit like Icarus, isn't it? This idea of you know, so being humans being so narcissistic and confident and just flying close and close to the sun and getting, well, just like that, melting away, <laughs> like we are. No, really yeah, yeah, no, I, I think the Greeks had it all. I mean, they had the word hubris, you know, that some, and I think that's what we as a species have in a big way. You know, we're, we're top of the evolutionary pile. We are the creatures, and we're absolutely not. I mean, the cockroaches will be here long after we're gone, and they absolutely. will be long before we ever arrived. <laughs> I mean, you must have done that marvellous thing when you, when you look at something sort of half a mile long and this is from the beginning of the universe to the to right now and where do humans yeah. or even just the earth let alone the universe where do humans appear sort of you know, less than a quarter of an inch before the end of that of that great long piece i mean we're very recent creations and very imperfect creations although rather fun creations at the same time we do enjoy it don't we Let's let's move on a little bit, Richard. Um, let's uh, let's yeah get a slightly more so topic of hand. And I was I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about your your role as a chair of the UK UK Health Alliance. Could you give us a little bit of information about that? Yeah. So so the the UK Health Alliance was started by Fiona Godley, who I just mentioned, who you know, is now the editor of the BMJ, and Robin Start, a friend of mine, who's a long term uh, environmentalist and peacenik. And it started about seven, eight years ago. And it really was based on the idea that we need the major medical bodies to speak out on this issue. It can't just be from people at the edges. And so it's an alliance that includes pretty well all of the Royal Colleges, the physicians, the surgeons, the surgeons not only in England, but in Glasgow and Edinburgh, the GPs, the nurses, the College of Paramedics and the dentists are joining. So we've got about 25 organisations as part of the alliance. And all together, because the BMA is also included and the Lancet and the BMJ. So all together, our members have about 700,000 members, which is a big chunk of the uh, NHS workforce. And we're working to mitigate the effects of climate change, emphasising how damaging climate change could be to health. But also, and I think this is the marvellous thing about approaching climate change from a health angle, if we did all the things we ought to do to reduce carbon consumption, like drive much less, fly less, exercise more, eat largely plant-based rather than meat-based diets, not only would we be reducing our carbon footprint, we'd also be making ourselves healthier. So I think in that sense, it's a kind of positive way to approach climate change. But then we're also interested in the inevitable adaptation. 
And we've we've got a major project on at the moment, which is, is has come out surprisingly well. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to be broadcast, but um, somebody we work with had the great idea. Why don't we get lots and lots of medical journals, health professional journals, not just medical journals, from all around the world to publish an editorial at the same time, saying how important this is and what needs to be done. Um, and rather to my amazement, some 233 journals have signed up, including not only The Lancet, the BMJ, but nursing journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, the National Medical Journal of India, the Chinese Science Bulletin, because this is very much a, a global issue. And we're going to launch that on September the 6th, uh, just as the UN General Assembly begins its meeting, because that would be a time to up the commitments that need to be made at COP26, the big UN meeting on climate change that will happen in Glasgow in November. And then we're also part of lots of other initiatives built around that, um, that meeting. And we have two core arguments in our editorial. One is we must do everything we can to try and stop the global temperature rising to more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And if we're going to succeed in doing that, then high-income countries like Britain, which have produced the problem really, need A, to make much bigger cuts in our carbon consumption, and B, we need to transfer resources to low- and middle-income countries, particularly those countries like Bangladesh, where I've worked a lot, where they're, they're much more vulnerable to climate change than we are. Um, and we need to help them in a big way. And if we don't do that, it's a bit like, it's the same argument really as with vaccines. We all need to do something. You, know, you can't protect yourself just by vaccinating your own population. Thank you, Richard. That's, that's fascinating. And, and yeah, congratulations on a, on, a, on a difficult task, but it sounds like you are moving forward and I look forward to that editorial, look out for it. What I think hasn't got through yet, um, but I think will and is beginning to is, I mean, in order to tackle climate change, everything must change at a global level, a national level, regional cities, and very importantly, health system. And then we've got to change as individuals and as professionals. And I think what it means really that clinical practice is going to have to change pretty dramatically um, in a way that I think people are only just beginning to grasp. And that, in my mind, means that whereas some of our members who are colleges might have thought we do care about climate change and we want to do everything we can, so we're glad to belong to the alliance, they didn't really think of it as core business. Whereas now I think it becomes apparent that it is core business because mm. look, the clinical standards is one thing that colleges do and the other thing they do is around education. So both of the, those things matter hugely. And I think that is beginning to get through to people. Yeah, and, and one of the aspects of clinical care, which uh, you wrote about recently in The Lancet, was specifically about clinical trials and the, the carbon footprint of clinical trials. You wrote that piece with um, some colleagues from the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition. Yes. And I, I, it, it hadn't really occurred to me until I read it to see clinical trials as a source of of carbon or of carbon emission, but obviously, it, it, when you think about it, it does it does sort of crystallise a little bit. I mean, what, what are the contributing factors? What what does make a clinical trial carbon intensive? The very fact of any activity, any consumption of anything, 
will will demand carbon. I mean, we have to understand <clears throat> carbon is absolutely everywhere. And in many ways, it correlates quite closely with cost. So cost and carbon tend to go together. So things that cost a lot, the clinical trials often cost a lot, um, go together with usually high carbon consumption. Now, they're not exactly in parallel, which is why you need to measure the carbon footprint of trials. But um, so you know, the number of patients you include, the number of measurements you have to make, the amount you have to travel. So particularly you know, a big multi-center trial that's happening in a number of different countries and people are traveling to those countries and then traveling around the country in order to uh, see patients and gather data. And if they're gathering data on paper and putting it together in big files, there are many, many um, contributors, which is really why if you want to reduce the carbon footprint of, say, a clinical trial, then you need to measure that footprint as best you can. I mean, people have now measured the carbon footprint of the NHS. Two thirds of it actually is down to things that are procured. So 20% of the carbon footprint of the NHS is drugs. Um, and yes, of course, all the equipment, but also the food that goes into feeding the people, the, the travel of staff and patients to and from hospital. There are many, many different components, but a big component is what you procure, which is one of the reasons that the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition has picked this up, because it's actually was set up by the NHS Sustainable Development Unit to bring together uh, public bodies like the NHS and the private sector. Because if the NHS is going to achieve net zero, which it's committed to doing in England by 2040 or 2045, it's going to have to get all the people that produce its supplies, including its drugs, to do everything they can to get to net zero. So there are many different um, components. But when we, when we put all, you know, I made a kind of rough calculation because a few years ago, Ian Roberts, who's a professor at the London School and was really one of the first people to draw attention to this, he measured the carbon footprint of a number of his trials, particularly the crash trials, which have happened around the world. Um, and he produced a sort of average figure for a clinical trial. So I then multiplied that by the number of trials listed on uh, clinicaltrials.gov, just to mm. get a sort of idea of the scale. And it came out at about a third of the carbon footprint of the whole of Bangladesh, 170 million people. I mean, I must admit that I chose that because as you probably realize, I mean, a, a, a Australians, for example, have a per capita consumption of carbon of about 16 tons per year, whereas in Bangladesh, it's about 0.6 tons. You know, it's hugely different. It's rich people living in big houses with big cars and flying around the world and air conditioning and heating that consume a lot of carbon. People living in villages in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia do not. Mm. So to some sense of scale, but a point I wanted to emphasize, we, we, we've honed in on clinical trials, but of course you really need to think about the whole research mm. Um, and not, not a lot of work has been done on that yet. But I mean, we, 
we've got to, we've got to look at absolutely everything. That's the point that I keep making. And clinical trials is a big component, and I think too there's probably lots of room for reducing the carbon footprint of clinical trials. Yeah, hopefully, um, quite like to get one of my rough calculations published in the Lancet one day. That would be a sign that I'd uh, <laughs> had a good career. <laughs> well, Just did this on the back of the envelope for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> sure just was... to give a sort of sense of scale yeah <laughs> no it's very helpful Richard thank you and I think um you mentioned about the pharmaceutical companies now um do we really have any hope of mitigating the carbon emissions from these these huge private industries um how difficult is that going to be to to control well in many ways I think a lot of private companies are ahead of most health systems I mean, lots of private companies for a long time have had targets to achieve net zero. And partly because of what I was saying earlier, when, when you launch into reducing your carbon footprint, there's a lot of fairly low hanging fruit, like changing your energy supply, changing your buildings, etc., that not only reduce the carbon, they reduce the cost. And these companies are very interested in doing that. Um, and I think they have realized that you know, there's going to be no world, there's going to be no business if they don't reduce their carbon footprint uh, to net zero. Uh, and I think also a lot of them see a lot of opportunities because as the world wakes up to the effect of climate change, you know, there begins to be very big demand for green responses to long-standing problems. So I think in many ways, um, a lot of big companies are ahead of health systems. I mean, the NHS in England at the moment is the only health system in the world that has a commitment to reduce its, not, not just a commitment, but a plan to reduce its carbon footprint to net zero by 2040 in terms of what it controls and by 2045 in terms of what it controls plus what it procures. Most health systems don't have any plan and most health systems have rising carbon consumption. You can see that in the Lancet countdown, which is published every year. And there's clearly something, there's some tremendous discordancy here that WHO, the Lancet, everybody who thinks about it says, climate change is the world's major threat to health. And yet here we have these health systems with steadily climbing carbon consumption. If you put all the health systems in the world together, their carbon, and their carbon footprint would make them the fifth biggest country in the world. It's 5% of all the carbon footprint in, uh, in the UK, by far and away the biggest public sector contributor. Mm. It's not so surprising because it employs 1.3 million people or even more now. And in the US, which of course has a huge carbon footprint, it's 12% of the carbon footprint of the US. So, you know, we've got to get the carbon footprint of health systems down and research and clinical trials are one part of that. And I think although having sort of almost seeming to be praised some of these pharmaceutical companies, I think there's, there's a lot of evidence that was published in the BMJ not so long ago, about a fifth of all the trials published in six big journals were judged to be essentially marketing trials. They're not really trials that we actually need. Um, you know, what we really want are trials that address 
fundamental clinical questions that really need to be answered that haven't already been answered. We don't really need these. And, and also, I think pharmaceutical companies often want to carry out trials in lots of different countries at the same time, because they can then say, you know, this drug works in Americans, this drug works in Indians, this drug works in Turks, and partly often for promotional reasons, sometimes for regulatory reasons. So I think there, <clears throat> there is a lot of room for pharmaceutical companies, once they pay attention to this, to reduce the, the carbon footprint of their clinical trials, potentially by doing fewer, <clears throat> but also by doing them smarter. There's going to be a lot of researchers out there, like myself, who are about to embark on some research, and, and you, they you know, hopefully think that their research is, is worthwhile and hopefully worth the carbon cost, I suppose. How, what would you say to these, to these people? What would you say to me? <laughs> well, you're probably aware of the big sort of waste in research programme. That, I mean, has been led in many ways by the Lancet and Ian Chalmers at the Cochrane Collaboration. I mean, they estimate that 80% of clinical research is wasted <clears throat> for a whole variety of reasons. You know, it's research that didn't need to be done in the first place uh, because the question had already been answered. It was research that wasn't really addressing a question that mattered very much. It was a, a research that was poorly designed and could never really answer the questions that were asked. It was research that was underpowered. There just wasn't enough power in the, uh, in the design to answer the question. And then the research wasn't completed. But when it was completed, it wasn't published. And if it was published, it was published in a place that lots of people couldn't access it. So there are... I think the program to reduce the carbon footprint of research and clinical trials obviously parallels the program to reduce um, the waste in clinical research. So I think you have to start by thinking, if it's a clinical trial, is this really necessary, this trial? Is it answering a question that really matters to patients or to clinicians or to policy people? Am I sure that it hasn't already been answered? Because we know that there's you know, people are often doing trials when they didn't really need to do the trial at all because the, the question had been adequately answered. Is the design adequate to answer the question? And have I minimised the cost and the carbon footprint? And, I mean, you would certainly have to produce a budget if you're going to have a, a trial funded. You'd have to present it to a funder. They'd have to be convinced that the trial was worth doing. They'd have to think that the budget was reasonable. And certainly I would like to see a world, and so would the others that signed the editorial with me, whereby one of the things you have to do is to say, well, this is the carbon footprint of this trial, and this is everything we've done to keep it as low as possible. We've minimised travel. We've, we've not put in more people than we absolutely need to answer the question, we're going to collect the data digitally. And just as the funder will make a judgment on, well, do we think this question justifies the cost? They would also think, does this question justify the carbon consumption? And I think we are moving, I mean, we're all used to the idea of 
cost? You know, is this is does this make sense and is, it, is the cost benefit reasonable? But I think we're moving to a world where actually carbon will matter much more than cost because you know, if we don't reduce our carbon, we're kind of doomed. So it, it'll steadily become more and more important. And of course, one of the ways it will become important is that there will eventually be a price put on carbon. I mean, in mm. a way, it arisen at this point because there wasn't a price put on carbon. You could fill the atmosphere with carbon and you didn't have to pay anything for that. Um, so I think we need to move to a world where carbon is. But also, so the funders would think, well, is the, is the research, is it a- answering a question that justifies the amount of carbon that will be consumed as well as the amount of money that will be consumed, which is why it's important to have some sort of system, ideally a standardised system for measuring the carbon footprint in trials. And that's what the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition together with lots of clinical trial centres. And actually, it looks like with a grant from the National Institute of Health Research, it's going to develop such a tool that will be available then to everybody. Is that about embedding that practice in funding bodies, so like the Wellcome Trust or MRC? You know, does that just become part of their sort of funding criteria? And and how, I mean, how how do you sort of, not force, but how do you, incentivize these large bodies with large sums of money to actually take carbon into account? I think that I think that's exactly what we would like to happen. And I think that will happen. So these bodies themselves, I mean the MRC, the Welcome, they have to commit themselves to net zero. And when they measure their carbon footprint, they shouldn't just be thinking about their buildings and their staff and their heating. They need to be thinking about where they're spending their money. And in fact, as you perhaps know, I mean, Welcome has been through <clears throat> a huge exercise of thinking. One of the things we would like to do is actually to sort of change the world, not, not fund research that we hope will change the world, but actually to concentrate on certain uh, topics where we can really make a difference, not simply by doing research but actually through advocacy and all sorts of actions and programs. And they spent a long time deciding what they would be. And they thought, you know, we we can't do 50 things. We need to concentrate on a limited number. And they've come up with three. And one of them is climate change. Mm. One of them is mental health. And another is emergent diseases and pandemics. So those are the three things they're concentrating on. So it's absolutely logical. And people from Welcome are included in this in our discussions, and as I said, from the National Institute for Health Research and from the other funding bodies, it's something they will have to do. I mean, Boris Johnson, bless him, says, you know, Britain is going to achieve net zero by 2000, I think it's 50 at the moment, it's 45 in Scotland. And of course, that's the easiest thing in the world to say, but then actually to make it happen is really, really tough. And it means everything in Britain and all other countries changing. So Welcome has changed, the NHS has changed, the MRC has changed, the National Institute for Health Research has changed. So this will will become just part of routine business. And certainly NICE, I know, is thinking about this. So when you license a drug, you'll think not just about its effectiveness and its safety, or we're not licensing drugs, deciding which will be available in the NHS. You also think about the cost and you think about the carbon footprint, and that is happening. Mm. 
Brilliant. And and you mentioned in the article, um, you're developing with your colleagues something called the sustainable healthcare tool. Is that a is that a tool to to do all the things you're just describing about sort of assessing the carbon footprint of research and of clinical trials? Yeah, I mean the, the one we're developing is specifically about clinical trials. Okay. I mean there are quite a lot of tools around already. I mean, as I said, the the NHS has measured its footprint. And, and they get steadily more sophisticated, these tools. I mean, quite often, I, I said how cost and carbon go together, and, and people tend to, I mean, we have very good data on how much the NHS costs. So when you don't have good, good sort of actual data on carbon consumption, people often use cost as a substitute. Um, but mm. surely the aim is to, to literally be able to measure the carbon consumption. Um, of of everything that happens, including the research, including education, um, everything. Brilliant. And, and if we were going to undertake such, I suppose, it's carbon mapping, and if it's going to be embedded in research and, as you say, everything, are there plans to upskill the research workforce or the education workforce um, on this? I mean, things like uh, the good clinical practice, um, the GCP courses, and things like that. Is that something which is going to be embedded in these? Yes, I hope so. I mean, I can't answer that question with complete confidence. I mean, certainly the, 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 there's a network of clinical trial centres in this country that we've been that are part of this uh, program to reduce the carbon consumption of clinical trials, and they're very much in the sort of education training area. I mean, it's clearly got to go beyond clinical trials to all of research, <clears throat> and I also know that Health Education England is producing material to um, that will that will be every NHS employee will be given information on um, carbon footprint and the climate crisis and why it matters within healthcare. And then I think they will also be beginning to develop steadily more sophisticated material. So probably the leaders in all of this are the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare in Oxford which has been going some dozen, 15 years. And they really are the leaders on what does all of this mean in clinical practice. And they have a lot of good material. They run courses. Um, and also one of the things they have done, and this might interest your listeners, is within specialties, they create fellowships so, I mean, some of the first, for example, were around anesthetics, around psychiatry. So you have somebody who's training in psychiatry or training in anesthetics who also works with them to think for a year or perhaps two years, you know, what is the carbon footprint of anesthetics? You know, what can we do to reduce the carbon footprint? And how can I persuade my colleagues to take this seriously? So another project, actually, that the... Um, we have at the UK Health Alliance. So we work very closely with the Greener NHS programme, which is the programme to reduce the NHS to net zero by 2040, 2045. And the director of that, Nick Watts, was the first director of the Alliance. And the deputy director is the current director of the Alliance, who's on secondment for a year. So we're very closely associated uh, with that. And one of the ways that we think we can contribute is we've put, we're putting together a net zero 
surgery working party, which will be run by surgeons. And we've got some funding to do this. And we'll say, well, what does it mean? You know, how on earth can surgery with all its anesthetic gases and its equipment and its waste and operating theatres, how can that possibly achieve uh, net zero? And our aim is to produce a report that will then go to all surgeons everywhere. And I think we'll have to go beyond that to all sorts of training and support. But the basic idea is that it should be for surgeons to say, what does net zero surgery look like? and then persuade other surgeons to make it happen. And we really need that within every single specialty. And some specialties are ahead of others. Um, Some are sort of lagging behind. Does net zero surgery mean referring to medics? Is that what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, something it certainly means (laughs) is probably less surgery because, you know, that has no carbon footprint, no surgery at all. And... Undoubtedly, there's surgery that probably is not in the best interest of the patient. So that's part of it. And then it's also, yeah. how can we minimize the carbon footprint of surgery when we do do surgery? And how we, can we prevent people reaching the point that they need surgery? Mm. We've covered on our podcast a few um, clinical trials that have come out in the last year or two about um, antibiotics and conservative management of appendicitis. It would be fascinating to plug into that a calculation of carbon as well. You know, is actually a five-day course of, you know, well, initially IV antibiotics, but then oral antibiotics. You know, how does that match a single operation in terms of its carbon um, emissions? I think that would be fascinating. Hopefully that's the sort of research that we'll start getting with, yeah. With your yeah, no, that would be a really interesting question. You know, and also I, when you mention antibiotics, I can't help thinking. I mean, I think antimicrobial resistance. I've you know, written editorial say so this is medicine's version of climate change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good sure. thing, and then we misuse it so badly that we destroy its value. Richard, thank you for this. I think it's, it's brilliant, and um, what what you've done is essentially given us real optimism but also real cause for continued concern and um that is that is climate change i think at the moment isn't it there's there's optimism and, and a lot of fear overall if you could put yourself into one camp or another are you a, an optimist or a pessimist about the future and climate change well i i always use the quote of gramsci you know the italian communist so i'm i'm a pessimist of the brain and an optimist of the heart oh that's lovely yeah, is a is 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 a good way to be. I mean, you 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 can see that. You know, I'm not I'm not sitting here in tears, um, but I have to say that at nights I can't say. You know, I'm 69 and going to be dead soon. I don't worry too much about <laughs> that. Um, whereas yeah. actually, the fact that we're destroying the planet distresses me much more. Um, and I'd like to. I mean, I I can't prevent my death. I don't want to prevent my death. I don't want to live forever. But I would like there to continue to be a world that my grandchildren and other children can live in. Mm. Yeah. Are you um, going to be on the streets of London from the 23rd of August with Extinction Rebellion by any chance? I mean, I, I know the people from Extinction Rebellion. and I've, I've been on a couple of their programs when we, um, we sort of... All, I, I haven't got as far as gluing myself or being arrested. I, I wonder mm. if I should become an arrestable as they're called, you have to go through training. Robin, Robin, who um, together with Fiona, I mean, Robin is 79. He, he was arrested 
he didn't actually intend to be arrested, but he was so infuriated by something <laughs> Boris said that he sat down in the street and got himself arrested. And he wrote it all up in The Lancet, actually. It, it makes very good reading. Um, so I will have to look at that. I, I should yeah. certainly, I mean, I've joined many protests. I suppose I'm still not sure whether I should go the next step and, and, and be arrested. There's no really reason really why I shouldn't be arrested, except I suppose that I would say if, if you think, you know, how are we going to campaign on climate change? You need, you know, you need real activists. You need people mm. who themselves to buildings. But the respect, I mean, what the Alliance offers really is, you know, we're, we're the, we are the medical establishment and we are saying all of this. And so I suppose, therefore, from that point of view, as that's where I'm making most of my contribution, maybe it's not a good idea for me to be arrested. But I have to think some more about it. I think it's probably best for you to not be arrested and publish all these articles. Oh, <laughs> live a little, John. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, if I'm arrested, they won't. I mean, I don't. I mean, if it was a matter of going to prison for ten years, I'd. <laughs> but I mean, the chances are you're arrested. True. You're stuck in a cell for a few hours, and then they kick yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, obviously, a worry for practicing doctors is that the GMC, if you then get convicted of a criminal charge, and I yeah. Some have, but most haven't. Mm. Then, you know, potentially that creates all sorts of difficulties. Whereas, you know, I'm not beholden to anybody. It doesn't really matter if I you know, <laughs> spend a night in a slammer. Um, Richard, on, on that sort of note, um, we often like to end the podcast by asking about, um, for the junior doctors listening uh, and who are, who have been, you know, are interested in this, this line of work and this topic, yeah, what advice would you would you give them to get into it? Maybe, maybe not getting themselves arrested and gluing themselves to the um, top of one of the tallest buildings or the bridge or something. But what sort of advice can you give them to get involved? Well, the first advice I would give is think about your own lifestyle, and I think lots of people do that. And I, actually, I published a whole blog in the BMJ about all sorts of actions you can take, which I divided into easy. Uh, less easy and least easy, but some of them are very easy. I think certainly think about joining some kind of organisation like MedAct or like uh, Health Declares a Climate Emergency or Students for Global Health. Uh, Energise your college to take action around this, and I think you'll find that you're pushing at an open door. And perhaps most importantly, if you, if you are a young clinician, then say to the people in, in your hospital or your practice or wherever you're working, you know, what are we doing here about climate change? Because actually, of course, it's one thing for NHS England to say we will achieve net zero, but all of the activities got to go on at a hospital, practice, community level. And I think that's probably where you can have most impact. Um, and, and I see a lot of young doctors and other clinicians doing exactly that going along you know write a letter to the chief executive saying you know i'm very worried about climate change i know the nhs is committed to getting to net zero what are we doing here about mm. climate change? Uh, ask you know your consultant go around the hospital talking about it and whereas i think you know five years ago they might have thought mm, bit of an activist i'm not sure we want all of this i think now you'll find you know this is this is what 
what the, the authorities of the NHS are saying we need to do. The challenge is to really make it happen. And as I keep emphasizing, that means change at every level. Brilliant. And finally, um, before we leave you, Richard, what um, if you had to leave our listeners with kind of one message from what you've talked about today, is there one thing in particular that you would want to highlight or leave them with? I suppose it's like what I've just been saying there. I, I think probably the most effective place for you as a, as a young clinician or researcher to act is within your institution and, and perhaps within your college as well. Say to them, what are we doing? Can we do more? Can I help? Super. Well, thank you very much. I feel very inspired and I'm sure Barney does as well. So yeah, yeah, thank you for taking you, the time to. Good. Well, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. <laughs> have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host Dr Barnaby Hirons and Dr Jonathan Hudson with interview guest Professor Richard Smith. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to our logo lady Natalia, graphics man Costa and promotion stars Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.